It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. This has to be short. Why is that, Chris? Because I'm in an undisclosed location, and we have to move every 30 minutes. Shit, what did you do? Well, um, I don't even know if I, I should say it on here, but I posted a picture of a sloppy quad anchor <laughs> on Instagram. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, this is serious. Um, yeah, exactly. People, so anyway, there's probably, is there, do you see like a pitchfork wielding mob carrying <laughs> torches anywhere coming down the street? No, but we're expecting them anytime, which is why we're going to have to move. We've, we've dug tunnels so we can get out the back is all I'm saying. <laughs> Shawshank style. <laughs> why would you do such a thing, Chris? I don't know. I, I actually, I have no idea now. Um, you know, I just thought it was, I actually thought it was a pretty decent quad. I'd never used one and I was on a climb here climbing a multi-pitch route with bolted anchors for the first time in recent memory like as in years and years since I'd done such a thing and I was like well this is it this is what it's for and so I untied my cordelette which I hadn't been using anyway because the anchors had chains on them and so I was just clipping the chains but mm -hmm. I decided that I would get on board and uh you dusted off your cordelette that had been on the rear loop of your harness for the last 10 ex years exactly yeah carefully very carefully undid the coil that i spent 20 minutes putting it in and uh and and untied it and then i i haste somewhat hastily tied a quad anchor or what i thought was like well it was a quad anchor and put it, put it up and then i took a picture of it and then i i had the um in in you know hindsight, the I made the mistake of posting it on the on my Instagram page. At which point, I assume that the reaction to that was um, only positive, and that people <laughs> uh, sung your praises for using the the online people's favorite anchor. Uh, it was maybe seventy thirty. 30% enjoyed my 70 quad. 70% liked it, 30% loved it. No, no, it was kind of the other way around. Well, you know, a, a sort of like, yes, but, mm. you know, the yes, the, or ha ha, but uh, post or comment. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you know that one? Like, oh, that's very funny, but right. now we're going to get serious about what the fuck is wrong with your quad anchor. So anyway, yeah, so it's it's been a harrowing uh, few days. Um, I don't know. I posted maybe a week ago and we're packing up the van right now to get out of here before, before they come for me. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to make this quick then because it seems okay. like your, yeah. uh, your personal <laughs> safety is at risk. Yeah. Um, tell me, and by the way, if you're listening miles and stuff, I love you guys. <laughs> I'll be home soon. I don't know when, but I'll be home soon. I can't communicate with you right now. <laughs> They're, they're for sure monitoring our communication. So um, anyway, love you guys. <laughs> was the uh, source of people's um, adoration for your post that you were using a cordelette instead of a sling? Which is, Don't you uh, normally use a sling for the quad? I have no idea. 
I, that, that's just the thing. Yeah, I thought I had the golden opportunity because as far as I can tell, that's what people love using these things for is they're pre-tied and then you have them for when you encounter two perfectly placed, relatively evenly spaced bolts mm -hmm. as your anchor. Right. Which is, of course, the easiest anchor to deal with anyway. Right. But there's this way to deal with it. And I actually thought it was funny because I put the quad on an anchor that had these two giant, perfectly equalized chains, which I could have just clipped a carabiner, a locking carabiner to and been done with it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do the quad anyway, even though the most efficient thing for me to do would be to just clip into the chains because mm -hmm. that's why they're there. To get serious, yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good quad, actually, but um, <laughs> but apparently not. <laughs> get a four out of four on, on the quad yeah. scale. No, I did not. <laughs> um, um, uh, I was trolling. I was, I, I was, in all seriousness, I was trolling. Yeah, you're a poking bit. the bear. You know, you, you know what you're doing. You're you can't you can't just come into Instagram with your quad picture and expect. <laughs> we can get off this like naivety thing. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew that it was like functionally fine. You know, like no one I climb with would have batted an eyelash at like whether or not it was safe mm -hmm. but i knew that there was enough things just like a little weird about it that it would it would bring them in like honey mm -hmm. like like killer bees <laughs> to the honey um and sure enough it worked i got 146 comments on my facebook page oh my god which i i realized like instagram comments go to your facebook page but your facebook comments don't go back to the instagram okay so there's well, there's the, like the comments face. that are on the Facebook that are not on the Instagram, but but not the other way around. Oh, okay. I don't I think. And Facebook is like interesting because it's way less uh the less um easygoing. The crowd over on Facebook is way less easygoing than the crowd mm. on Instagram. That's interesting. Where they don't cross over is what I'm saying. Right. I mean most of them probably cross over, but yeah. but yeah, it seems like the the real sort of like slightly angry about my quads you know quality like there's like you know there's like a tinge of sort of like like literal anger that i would even post something so dangerous as this quad anchor that i posted those comments tended to be over on facebook facebook seems a little bit like yeah a little bit more of a forum for mm -hmm. for like uh anger mm -hmm. if you will i don't know they're more boomery yeah i think so um but what was the what were people upset about like specifically? Well, the one thing I will concede <laughs> slightly give them nothing. Well, the the criticism that I think I was like, oh yeah, that's probably good is to is my carabiners were on top of the chains mm. in the hangers. Um the top two carabiners were which I understand and I've actually, you know, I know that like on a on a sport climb and I've complained about the fact that links get put on bolts on sport climbs and then there's been a couple incidences that I know of where a, a beaner it was actually beaner on a beaner, like two beaners in the in the in the hangar broke one of the beaners because it leveraged it uh it levered it, you know, on its axis versus the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so I was like, Yeah, that's probably is a good idea, like to to twist it under the Chains. My only defense is that actually we're on this like really, really low angle slab. And I think to be honest with you, the direction of pull that the beaners are at 
because they're slightly angled, um, is the actual direction of pull that you would receive if someone like if you had a factor two fall or something like that, it wouldn't actually be straight down. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was a little bit like, like really like two beaners are just going to simultaneously explode on an equalized anchor mm -hmm. um, because they both, they got pulled a little bit sideways. However, I thought, okay, well, you know, I've complained about that before. So yes, that that's probably a good idea. But um, there was two things that really like threw people into sort of a, a, a of a, tizzy was well a few things but the two things that were kind of funny is that one of my carabiners had nuts on it mm -hmm. um in addition to my sling there was just like a few nuts hanging there with that carabiner which did you put them there on like, purpose knowing that people no were... i didn't i although when i took the picture i knew that that was probably going to be a problem <laughs> um so it was a little bit of bait it was like a little chum in the water so to speak but it's it, it, the, the funny thing is it's just like it just tells me who doesn't really climb big trad routes that often yeah. because arriving at your anchor with almost no gear on your harness and having to cannibalize things, it's actually the norm as much as it is like unusual. Right. Like you get there and you're like, oh shit, I used my slings and I've used that and I've used that and I got to, so that was, and that literally is what, what happened. I, 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 that's was the only carabiner I had left was the one that had like three nuts left on it because we were track climbing. I had nuts. And so I just used it in the anchor. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's, and it's completely irrelevant to the safety of the anchor. They're just hanging there with the cord, but people like really had a problem with that. And the other thing that I did, and I, and again, this was also chum. When I posted the picture, I was like, Oh, people are going to really be confused about that. Not <laughs> is I tied it like I, I made it as I was going. It wasn't pre-tied, you know, which yeah. is what I'm, I'm realizing that most people have these things ready yeah. for two two bolts. Is that once I made it pretty quick and then I was like, oh, it's a little crooked. And so I shortened one side by putting a overhand knot right up by where it was clipped to that, to the carabiner, mm -hmm. which again, completely irrelevant to the safety of the system. Right. That knot is doing nothing. And it's like, oh, well, it weakens the, no. It does. It, it may in a in a in a lab weaken the material, but the whole point of the quad is you've got double everything doubled up. There's already knots in it. No, it's it's completely irrelevant to the safety of the anchor. But it fucking like people couldn't stand it. it it's existence. Hmm. Like yeah. it wasn't dressed perfectly. Well, that also was bothered a lot of people. Yeah, that my knots were not were not dressed perfectly, <laughs> which. My retort to that is that if you are up there and you have to readjust a quad to make it even and you spend more than 10 extra seconds dressing that knot while I'm hanging on a hanging belay waiting for you to get the fuck off belay, I'm not climbing with you anymore. Yeah. I don't, the, the dressing of that knot is completely irrelevant to the function of the anchor mm -hmm. and it's a waste of time. The same way wrapping your cordelettes into those perfect little coils on your harness every time is a waste of time. And if I caught you doing it on a multi-pitch climb, I would just delete your number from my phone. I'd be like, I'm done. I'm not going to hang on a hang belay while you carefully make everything just look like it's supposed to look in your books. It would drive me, it would drive me absolutely insane. So you got not anyway. shamed. Um, you got anchor. Shamed. Yeah, I got not shamed. Um, the, the tails, coming off of my overhand that tied the whole thing together. You know, when you make the loop, mm -hmm. the, that the overhand, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
the the tails on that were a little bit long. A few, a bunch of people had a problem with that, mm. which is again irrelevant. It seems like that would be safer, right? Anchor. They, well, they just yeah, didn't like it so looking messy. They just didn't like it looking messy, huh. which I, I can understand. But again, it's like it, I tied it in the moment. It wasn't pre-tied. The cool thing about this is, in a way, is I really started examining this anchor. And I realized that actually that knot is also irrelevant mm-hmm. because it's doubled up there. That knot can come undone and you can still have the other loop right. on that side in there. Right. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I was kind of psyched on that, actually. I was like, look at that. that. Who cares? And that's why I was like, who cares? Like, oh, your tails are too long. I'm like, who cares? Like, tell me if this thing will hold a factor two fall. It will. One of my carabiners <laughs> it that... Doesn't the, look good. it doesn't Well, that's the thing. A lot of these critiques were then followed by the, the statement that I was going to die or that this thing was complete. Like, the fact that I was even posting this thing was like... Irresponsible. You know irresponsible yeah and it's like no it's fine it's a fine anchor oh the other thing that people were mad about is that i didn't have lockers on the top mm-hmm. but i will go to my grave that an, an an observed anchor you do not need to have lockers on the two on the two bolts what um that's just how many lockers and actually a guide what's well, how that? many lockers do you normally bring with you on like a multi-pitch couple yeah like two right <laughs> yeah a couple yeah like one Sometimes for one anchor enough. and one for the next anchor yeah, I mean, not including the one on your blade of right. ice and stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, and actually a guide piped in, because um, I did sort of bait um, our favorite guides to, to come in and comment. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, not bait, but, I, you know, I, I, put, I, I sort of referenced them. And they, they, you know, sort of ambivalent about the lockers a little bit, making the point that, again, it was an observed anchor. And what that means is that someone's there. It's not a top rope anchor that you're not looking at all day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a guide and you have a top rope anchor, yeah, you're going to put lockers on there. But I just don't think it's necessary on a, on a observed anchor on a, on a, because it's redundant. You've got the two things. That's what makes it redundant. Right. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, that's fascinating stuff. Um, I, <laughs> what is the, what is the best, what's like the best pitch for using the quad? It's just, you think it's just that people like to have this thing pre-rigged? on their harness and then they can just throw it on an anchor. I don't know. I mean, people are probably already like some people are probably already breaking a tooth right now, like grinding their teeth. But you know, when we've messed with these in in our clinic, um, and again, this was just me like first time I'm like, I'm going to use this thing. And and part of the joke was uh, to me, part of the joke was that it was on top of, like I said, these, I mean, mammoth chains that, were there already mm-hmm. yeah i mean and even the people commenting were were mostly talking about using them on on routes that have bolted anchors and then when i see like the the videos they're always either someone's bedroom their teaching board you know the thing they've got attached to a tree or to the wall or whatever with two bolts right. perfectly even et cetera, et cetera. or it's like red rocks where all the at this point like on any trade route the anchors have been replaced mm-hmm. with two bolts. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, is that what it's for? Can it, can it, is it useful for, um, on the fly, like equalizing pieces or, or even bolts that are uneven and, and spread apart and in different places? Like, I mean, what's your take on it? Well, cause that seemed to be everybody's like reference point was that they, Oh, I do like the, you know, cause they, they got the joke, but they're like, I do like the quad because I climb here 
in the Northwest. And there's like these gigantic bolted roots that are now up these big granite walls. And they have, you know, they're modern and they have two anchor, you know, two bolts, you know, one foot apart, perfectly even. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's pre-rigged. You go snap, 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 and you're and you're you're on your way. Right. Is is like it's shining use, right? Yeah. I think that's it. I think it has it kind of ticks all the boxes in that serene acronym. Right. Like it's kind of got a little bit of self equalization going on. Um which, you know, used to be the sliding X thing that people right. used to do and that was popular back in the day, but now no one does that anymore. Um because of the uh extension issue that could happen mm-hmm. i don't know is mm-hmm. there another issue with that or is it just yeah the- that's that's that well that was always the extension issues but the funny thing was is that is that people were very commonly saying how they use it a lot to top rope on bolts hmm. why would you do which that? is a sit well that's just the thing is it's a situation that is a situation that you have almost no multi-directional pull Right. I mean, if you elongate angles on like an 80 foot top rope for, for that, for that equalized anchor to get any sort of significant sideways pull, your climber would have to be climbing like 30 or 40 feet to the left or right of the line, right. like way the fuck out there to get any sort of like significant direction of pull. And so it's like, it's like one of those things where it's like, you're, you're using this thing to cure a problem that doesn't exist. Right. You know, yeah, that's that, crazy because there is n- almost no multi-directional nature to a top rope. Even if you climb ten feet to the side, if you look at the elongation of angles, it's not—it's barely moved the direction of pull mm-hmm. at the anchor. If you're like forty feet below it or whatever, and, and if you're climbing forty or fifty feet to the side, well, then your anchor's in the wrong fucking place, right? You know, so it's like, and you've got this whole other problem, right? Look, I—I want to say yeah. this though. The thing that like gets me about it is like, again, I was like, it caused me to examine the quad and I started thinking about its uses. I started thinking about mine and, and, uh, you know, this idea of those beaners being under the chains and a few little things, but like the righteousness with which people critiqued it and then followed it with like almost some sort of attack on my character was what actually bothered me. Right. Me like not dressing my knots or like, yeah, it's my tails were kind of fucked up on that knot. Absolutely right. I'd rather have a clean knot. But like acting like I was like doing this disservice to the world and, and, and that I was like some sort of asshole because of it and that you were so much fucking better than me because you could like, you know, fail me on my AMGA course, which is essentially like most of the critiques was that. Right was like shit that nobody I know who I climb with gives a shit about or would look at that anchor and be like, ah, this is fucked, Calouse. Yeah. Only an AMG exam person would actually like tick me for for my tails being too long. Right. You know, which is sort of a racket because then, of course, they can fail the guy and be like, yeah. Give us another three thousand bucks, dude, because <laughs> you had your tails yeah. too long. Like, you, you know what I mean? It's like t- and the level thing one that the, top rope instructor. You need right. to fix those tails up, buddy. Totally, and I get it. Like they are doing this institutional thing, but they were doing that to me, and I don't give a fuck about that shit. <laughs> like, yes, I would fail an AMGA guides course on day one. You know what? <laughs> I totally would. Yeah, and and you know what? Whoever failed me has like 
a quarter of the climbing experience I have. <laughs> so enjoy failing me, like your little power trip or whatever. You know what I mean? And that's what it was. It was these little like mini power trips that were happening on my, on my comments. Like clearly, like these little power trips, like, oh, oh, oh my God. Like, who is this? He, he purports to be an experienced climber. And yet, and honestly, people, honestly, this was the first time in 33 years that I had used a quad in a climbing situation, mm-hmm. right? Like I've managed to get here without the fucking thing. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, it was just really funny. You it, got tisk tisked. It's just this endless thing. Like we've been making fun of it for a long time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if I went home right now and I and I and I built myself a board with two bolts in it and I put a quad on there and did one little thing where like my knot wasn't dressed, I could post that and and guarantee that I'll get 50 comments. Mm-hmm. Like no problem. Like I said, it's just like throwing chum into the water. Now, do you think people you know are joking or are they serious or somewhere in between? Dude, that was a big problem. That was a big problem when I was reading these. <laughs> I mean, some of them were so straight, so like, I don't see the humor. Because I mean, it, the, the post itself had some humor in it. Like, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the people got it. Yeah. And a lot of people were like, like, um, I had to look up, uh, uh, YGD. Do you know what that means? Um, like that acronym and no, you're going to die. Oh, you're going to die. YGD. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to look that up and, and like, you know, the usual suspects were like, haha, And people were like, yeah, you should have had, you know, they got the joke. They're like, you should have had steel beaners. Like what's wrong with you? Or like your, right. your cordage is too thin. You should be using like, <laughs> you know, 10,000 pet test cable or whatever. <laughs> like people got it. But then there were the ones in between where I'm like, is this like the straightest of straight humor where you're just like going to hammer me for like 500 words in your comment, but you're really just like joking. I honestly, like there were many of them and I even showed a couple to Steph. I was like, do you think this person's joking? Cause it was so like, just so detailed and so angry and so like over the top. I was like, ah, I don't, thinks i think i think they're joking she's like no i don't think they're joking i'm like okay they're not joking (laughs) well look philosophically here's what i want and this is why i like i mean great you're out there climbing safe you're like you're you're super meticulous about your about your anchors and your knots and things like that i awesome like you're in way better shape than maybe i am in terms of like being safe out there what I want is I want to believe you understand the real physics and the real nature of your anchor. And you're not just parroting what you've read in a book or what somebody told you to do. And again, some of those comments, I was like, nuts on that beaner don't matter. Mm -hmm. Like you just don't like it because it doesn't look like what your book told you to do. Right. Which means you don't really understand the situation and, you know, that kind of thing. Or like that extra knot, like, what's it doing there? Well, if you climb a lot and you've climbed a lot of multi-pitch routes, you know exactly what it's doing there. It was there to shorten that one side. Right. And it's irrelevant to the, to the, to the safety of the, of the system. And if you don't get that, then you don't fucking get the anchor. Do you know what I mean? Because you're just parroting what you read in a book. And if you're thrown one little curveball, then all that shit's going to go right out the window and you're not going to know what to do. 
which is, you know, part of like our clinic anchoring thing is that here's all these tools because it doesn't always fit what you think it's going to fit. And you're going to have to be ready for that. And that's people kind are of too thing. literal. Like, like people, they don't, yeah, they, totally. they're too literal about what the textbook example is. And then they don't know, like they don't know, understand the physics or you think that they're, their critique of um, little things that don't matter just kind of belies a deep, uh, like the fact that they're um, confused about, or maybe just don't understand the physics of how anchors work in general. They don't have a real world understanding of what a climbing anchor is supposed to do. Okay. It doesn't need to hold 10,000 pounds. Or that it can take many shapes and forms and achieve the same goal. And your climb is going to throw that at you. Right. You know, it's like, you know, when we went and saw Vince Anderson's uh, presentation on climbing in Peru, Mm -hmm. you know, and he started talking about rappelling and what they do to rappel off those mountains. And it's like, you know, they, he kind of like opened this little door to this, to the secrets of the Alpinists. And one of them was that they fill a stuff sack with snow and put their rope around it and bury it. And that's their anchor. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that's their anchor, Yeah. you know, like critique that fucking thing, (laughs) you guys like, (laughs) it's like, it's, but it does what it needs to do for them at that time. Right. This snow is neve. It's not fully compacted snow and it'll, it'll fail under the certain forces. (laughs) Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, it's, it's, it's humorous too, but it's like, it's kind of a little bit of that. Like, state your opinion but then back it all up mm-hmm. but it is just curious to like see the the kind of culture of gear porn and anchor porn on instagram and um i think that the quad probably would not be as popular as it is without that no absolutely not it's like that's why we've made fun of it it's got a funny name and <laughs> it is it, it is like the number one most sort of posted about anchor that i've seen mm-hmm. you know although there's the the girth hitch thing where you put the your master point on a girth hitch in the middle of the sling, it's gaining some steam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's not directional though, right? Which I I don't right. think matters so, that much. I don't either. Apparently, neither do the girth hitch people <laughs> that are promoting it right I, now. There's like a there's like a, a like a PR company that <laughs> attaches itself to these for some reason these anchors. I feel I, I feel like we could we should monetize this somehow. I feel like we need. We haven't we haven't um we haven't gone into the merch uh business yet at the run out here, but maybe there's a, a quad You think anyone's patented the quad quad shirt that we can come up with. <laughs> I'm waiting to see the, the company that comes up with the sewn quad. Like someone will eliminate the, the need for knots and take a sling and put a bar tack, like two bar tacks in the middle of their sling and that's gonna be Ooh. the sewn quad. Like who will it be? Uh, if I had to guess, it'd be Mad Rock or like, (laughs) 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 I saw this piece of gear that Mad Rock put out that has two lock, two gates and right, right. I saw it too. You saw that. Yeah. yeah. And it's supposed to extend your belay device so you can repel easily or something like that. I'm Uh not sure. Oh, wait, wait. I wanted to, I wanted to share something. I wanted to share something. Um, is that one thing I realized was when I got to the top of the climb mm-hmm. and I went to repel. And as we know, I don't use a, a, a personal anchor system. Mm-hmm. So when I go to repel, I usually have to grab a couple slings and make my tether or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
dude, I grabbed the damn quad. Still had it tied. Mm-hmm. And I, I girth hitched that onto my harness. Still with the and quad heads on? Yeah, the quads. All the knots oh in it God. and everything else. It was this great leash that had two, two or three places to clip, clip oh, it. Oh, wow. Because of those knots, it was like it was like the and it actually was like a really good length for that. Wow. So I want to go ahead and I'm going to do my next guide video where I fucking I invent that yeah. where you take the quad and it becomes your your repelling tether, and it's perfect actually. The distances and stuff actually work out really well to put your blade device and your clipping and all the things on okay. it. So all right, that's how I'm like a futuristic robot that has just come up with this new. <laughs> use for the quad um i the quad leash i i I have a sense that the quad squad on instagram will be coming after you for that well they all have daisy chains so there's so this isn't a relevant piece of information for them so (laughs) (laughs) like that's the problem right there's no there's like this tiny little in the venn diagram there's this tiny little little area of people who don't have a personal ecosystem, but are using quads. So it's a very, it's a very esoteric piece of information to be able to turn your quad into your personal ecosystem. It's for like six people. Oh my gosh! The next time I see someone climbing with a with a quad girth hitch to their belay loop, just like perma hitched, I'm gonna freak out. No, you're gonna be like you owe Calusa yeah. fucking thank you note for that little piece of information right there. You're welcome, climbing world. (laughs) Luke Mihal is the publisher of The Climbing Zine and the creator of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I do look forward to seeing your film, and um, yeah, congratulations on that. Thanks, man. What's your film? It's a, a short about, or not a short, but about a 10-minute film on a first ascent we did in the creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you going to the filmmaker's dinner tomorrow night? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll see you there. Right on. I'll just be here in my house, yes. not hobnobbing with <laughs> Christy <laughs> Brinkley or whoever the fuck goes to that thing. Celebrities. <laughs> Christy Brinkley. Christy Brinkley. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, t- tell me you haven't been following. No, the reason culture. I said that is because <laughs> telling me. Remember, she was in the well, you don't last twenty this, years, probably, but she was in a helicopter crash um, in Telluride, like twenty years ago. That's why I made a re- Christy Brinkley reference to Telluride. Huh. <laughs> I'm just fucking. You guys are here. Okay. I'm looking way up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did not did not know any of that. Tom Cruise is this motocross track and shit down there somewhere. All right, I think he sold it, but you know, yeah. Oprah's got her place. Anyway. Seinfeld. All right, know. you guys want to uh, get rolling here? Nice. If any of that probably doesn't play, since sure, Uh-oh. yeah, no one knows who Christy Brinkley is anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I thought maybe we could start with your uh, just getting into what you've been up to for the last couple of months or however long you were down in Mexico. You did sort of a residency down there um, and you got pretty industrial. So uh, what was going on down in Mexico? Yeah, so I went to Mexico um, in December and uh, for like two weeks and 
and then came back to Colorado and realized I don't know what I'm doing in Colorado in the winters anymore. You know, like I've never been a winter sports person and definitely get the seasonal affective disorder, which I think everyone does to some extent. But, um, so I decided to go back to Mexico for like a month and just try to see if that would be a place I'd like to live in the winter and stuff. And I really liked it and yeah, um, fell in love with the lady there, which is a whole nother side story, but I let my passport expire, which you used to be able to do that and just come right back. But, um, as of last year, they passed a law that you can't return to the United States with an expired passport and you have to renew it at a consulate. So I had to renew it at the consulate in Monterey and it took like two weeks just to get in there to get an appointment. And it's like getting super hot in Potrero, you know, it's like, it's, it's lovely there. But when it starts to get like 90 degrees, you're like, (laughs) you start to become irritable and you're like, I'm not enjoying this, but I don't know why, you know, (laughs) like, um, and so, uh, luckily it only took them about two weeks to pass, um, to, um, process my passport and everything. And, um, so I was able to get back, but it was kind of like one of those experiences like, wow, I just like literally can't go back home right now. And it was kind of just an interesting experience. Um, and I'd never been to a consulate as well, like a United States consulate. So that was kind of an interesting experience as well. So did they give you the Royal treatment? They did. Yeah. So I got there, I didn't know what to expect. And there's like a thousand Mexicans waiting in line, um, just to get their tourist visas so they can visit the United States. Uh, they, they did, they like, Oh, you're a gringo, whatever, like go to the front of line. And, and they were, um, yeah, super, super helpful way, like way nice. Um, the, government employees there at the consulate were super nice so you were generally new routing uh quite a bit down there as well it looked like one new route that took me two months yeah i will never put up like a cactus removal vegetated route ever again in mexico um yeah it took me (laughs) two months to clean and it was like in this super busy popular area in virgin canyon so if i wanted to trundle i had to like get to i like was recruiting all these youngsters to like do trundle lookout for me at like 7 a.m and, uh, so I had to do all the trundling at super early in the morning and then just kept being like more and more and more cleaning. Cause you want it to be hundred percent perfect. And it was like a 35 meter route, but so I wasn't doing that much new routing. I put up one five ten. that took oh. me two months. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Cause I just was like, Oh man, they're putting up some big ass route, like multi-pitch gigantic thing. Just, I mean, just watching your social media. Um, yeah. but that's classic. It was just, <laughs> how did it turn out i mean you know (laughs) i think it turned out good yeah people can let me know on mountain project but um, oh they will (laughs) i I did a lot of uh uh, rebolting as well while i was there. oh right okay yeah that's probably more what i was seeing uh, then yeah yeah. just yeah and that's pretty uh pretty effective so you getting um bolts from from somewhere are they coming out of your pocket uh, from Aska, yeah, yeah. Okay, Aska cool. provided everything, and Aska provides most of the bolts for bolt replacement in Potrero, which is pretty awesome that they've stepped up. Because um, I think other American climbing organizations could step up more there because we're the one of the main users, you know. Um, and the infrastructure of like climbers coalitions in Mexico. There's one. Um, I'm gonna. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's based out of Monterey, and they've been doing some awesome bolt replacement and other work in Huasteca and stuff. Um, but I, from my experience, what I saw, uh, most of the bolts that are, um, for bolt replacement are coming from Aska, which is kind of tough cause you got to either drive or fly down there. And yeah, so I, I flew down with a bunch of gear and, and basically like placed, you know, just about everything that I brought down. So I have to bring another stash uh, when I go back down there next year. So Aska and ye shall receive. Yeah. <laughs> be <their> new motto. <laughs> 
<laughs> love asking man they're yeah they're they're an, they're a great group bare bones too um so we l- often lament on the show about the death of print media but um print's not dead because uh the climbing zine is here and that has been your project for i'm not sure how long but um you find yourself in kind of an unusual space of being the unlikely last man standing in in uh the print media world well we always we always like completely dismiss the alpinist for some reason i know but they don't count <laughs> why not i don't know <laughs> nobody reads it that's why um and it's easier to just say that all the magazines are gone even though that's yeah not true. that's that that is easier but yeah. then we're always like but they're still luke and then you know the alpinist is like hey uh, we still put out a magazine, <laughs> and so does Gripped in uh, Canada. Gripped yeah. still, I think, puts out a, a print copy, don't they? I'm not sure. I think so. I, don't know. I think yeah, so. Exactly. Well, no one's sure. <laughs> well, you know, you, you even just buying a magazine out in the real world, real real world is a, you know, it's not what it used to be. It has become this kind of niche artistic space, and which is yeah, kind of fascinating. I didn't think it would kind of go that direction, but. Um, Tell us about, you know, kind of what, I guess, what's your take on the media landscape and climbing right now? How do you see the climbing zine being either thriving or, you know, limping along? Um, you know, just give us your broad picture view of, of uh, the print world and the climbing media world. Yeah, that's, it's such a big question too, because it's like, it, I almost try to like, I like to look back at things in increments, you know? When I started, it was a stapled together black and white, like punk rock style zines. So I started doing zines in like 2007. Um, and I did a couple of zines before I did the climbing zine. But as far as like the media landscape, so I mean, I joke with Calouse that he, you know, there's this era that most people found out about the climbing zine through the Enormacast for when I would ask about where people would find out about it. It would, for like years um, after I first appeared on the Enormacast, which was probably. That was probably about 10 years ago now, right? That I appeared mm-hmm. on the Enormacast. Um, and so it was just like, it, I was kind of doing this underground thing that I, people have always like respected and liked it, you know? Like um, even when, you know, I, I look back at some of the old stuff and it's just like almost embarrassing to look at of how bad it was and how long it took us um, to get it going. But uh, you look back like 10 years and so I'm there, there's rock and ice, there's climbing, there's the Alpinist. There's maybe even Urban Climber <laughs> magazine. Jim Climber. Uh, Jim Climber, yeah. And so I just try to like look back 10 years and be like, all right, there was like a couple podcasts and I was one of, you know, I was like n- almost kind of competing with the other magazines. And I think I was able to kind of slide in because I had like super affordable uh, rates for advertisements and stuff like that. And, um, I had my friend, Sean Matasavage that would go to business meetings with me. And, you know, he's one of those people who could sell, you know, anything to anybody. He's, he's a very charismatic guy. So we kind of got in the door by selling, uh, ad placements, but just like, yeah, thinking about Chris in the Enorma cast and, and Chris would just plug the zine so much. Like I never, we tried to like give each other money, but always be like you giving me $50 and me giving it back to you on PayPal. <laughs> and then sure I think remember, eventually yeah. now we just stop giving each other money. Cause, um, but you, you saw, I think you saw a uh, kindred spirit in, in me, Chris did. And so he wanted to, um, you know, support it. And so for a while, it was just like, I kind of just need this outlet for people to find out about it. And I've never been social media savvy or anything either. 
which is, is super important now. I think I've gotten a little more savvy and I'm, I'm trying to get more savvy. But yeah, just looking back 10 years at the media landscape, magazines were still super relevant. Um, and there wasn't too many podcasts. There wasn't just like 10 years to now, like the change is so profound. But from, from my opinion, the, the zine has an advantage because it's kind of, it's not a magazine. Um, it's, it's smaller. Um, and we, you know, kind of have this base of a following that's, that's continuing to grow and grow. Um, but I think, especially with climbing and rock and ice going away, I think that's really benefited me because climbers, I think want tangible things. I climb, I think climbers are a different audience. Um, and so I think that because we're, I'm, I'm the only one really offering, um, in addition to the Alpinist and, and don't forget about California climber too. Um, everyone will chime in about that when I say I'm the last one. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just, it, it feels like I've just kind of benefited by being the last thing. And then I think the zine being different and also the way we tell stories and, and the, the people like craving storytelling, um, about real raw, like honest things that have happened in climbing in life. I think that's where we connect with readers and stuff, but, um, yeah, just the changing media landscape is a crazy, crazy thing. And I guess I can only really kind of answer that in like the story of the zine, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so mind blowing of how fast things are changing and there's all these trends I'm not even aware of. You know, I just found out about that, like Magnus guy on YouTube and just like watch one of his YouTube videos. Apparently he's like the biggest thing in climbing right now. I didn't even know that until, I was like talking to somebody on the phone and like, yeah, check that out. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's my kind of long winded answer of, of what I feel about print media. And, and I do think there's a difference between magazines and zines. I think magazines, um, other than the ones like the mountain Gazette or the Alpinist, um, that are kind of higher end that people are, are willing to pay for. I mean, the mountain Gazette's transformation's been insane. You know, they went from a free magazine that, would be there for 10 years, go away for 20 years, come back for 10 years. And it was always free. And now, I mean, their subscriptions are like, um, pretty expensive for two issues a year, but they have a huge subscription base because the owner, Mike is just really savvy at, at selling publications. So I, I think, you know, print is not dead. I think many magazines are dying and you, you find out about more and more every day. But, um, I think especially with the climbing audience, I think there's a craving for, for tangibility and, and something you can hold and um, get your eyes away from a computer screen. So, you know, I, I've kind of gone full circle on, on the, on these questions where it seemed at one point, you know, probably 10 years ago, insane to me that I would write a piece and it would be edited and then put into a design file alongside pictures and then printed in a magazine in China that would then get shipped across the ocean to the United States where it would be distributed, you know, two months after I'd finished even thinking about it. And it just seemed like the worst way to convey a piece of information to someone. Like why were, you know, it was just so insane to do it that way. Like if the goal is to get people to read your ideas and thoughts and stories, then you couldn't imagine a worse way to do that in in a in an era where it's possible to you know reach and touch people instantly but i have you know sort of started to turn on that and i appreciate more as more and more of our lives become you know digitized and online and we're looking at screens all day the there is something um really 
pleasurable about being able to hold an object that and and there's value in and like you you give money to someone and you get to hold something that's tangible and it feels um special in a way that i think is increasingly kind of fleeting mm-hmm. and that makes me think of um this new you know kind of revolution in being able to do something with you know like there's that thing about a thousand dedicated followers or whatever um I, I get a lot of my stuff from like hip-hop culture and, and things like that you know starting with like mixtapes like scenes are kind of like mixtapes but um there's this artist nipsey hustle who had this proud to pay campaign and he he came out with his cd for a hundred dollars and people are like what the hell is this he didn't you know he have, wasn't signed to he didn't have like a major agreement or anything and jay-z bought a thousand of them or a hundred of them for 10,000 bucks or whatever the math is. It's just like, he, he saw that move and respected it. And, you know, Nipsey hustle sadly was killed. Um, but I think trends like that are, are an important thing to, to look at as well. So it's like, I, I agree with you. I think more and more people are going to come back to tangible things. I mean, I even see 21 year olds that they're coming full circle of like, you know, I meet more and more 21 year olds that are like off social media and like, they love things like the zine. Um, so I think there, there's a coming back, not just for like people of our age, but I think even younger people, um, that crave this thing, like people are collecting tapes now. <laughs> like we all know t- that tapes are like the biggest garbage invention ever, you know, next to CDs or whatever. Um, but people are collecting tapes. They sound way worse than CDs. Yeah, we have a yeah. tape player in our car still. And, uh, yeah, they sound terrible, and like it, so noticeable that you didn't even notice when I was like, a, you know, middle schooler and just ruining the tape by playing it over and over again. They sound terrible. Yeah, and, but now you got, uh, 20 year olds who never had anything, but I, I, you know, um, iPhones or I, I don't even know if they had iPods, but they're collecting tapes cause they want something tangible and, and it's almost like nostalgia for something you never had. So. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the business model because the thing is, is you know, it, it's not. It's like often blamed on this idea that you know people want to just get everything instantly and look at it online. But but honestly, the the advertising landscape changed a lot in the last ten years as well. Also related to the internet, to where you know print ads were just the value, or at least the perceived value, because it's always been. I mean, advertising is just perception, really, of what something's worth. But um, you know, went down while it was you know the the, the fa- Facebook and Google just took over the advertising world. Um, that killed has killed these magazines as much as a lack of desire for them out in the world. You know, because um, you always had to have both. You had to have subscribers, but you had to have that. I mean, the ad revenue was what you really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what about that in in terms of the evolution of the zine as a business, you know, because obviously, you know, you were, you were probably like the, the early zeners at Kinko's, you know, in the middle of the night making your zine. And then it became something bigger than that. And, you know, you were a dirt bag and now you're an adult and you, you actually need, you know, something that has a steady income to it. So what about the evolution of the business part of it? Well, fun fact, my first zine was made at Kinko's. Uh, yeah. It's called Moonlight Dream I mean, that Tasters. was part of the yeah. culture, right? <laughs> yeah. Because Kinko's were 24 hours too. So it was like there'd be the old skaters or whatever would be in there like collating their pages in the middle of the night or whatever. Yeah. So I I had the advantage of it was just me, you know, kind of like 
a lot of things in climbing now that are successful. It, it was just, it was just me. So I wasn't, um, I, I hire a team of freelancers to do my design, my editing and my website. And I have friends like, you know, Sean Matasavage who volunteered their time. Um, so it was just me. And in the beginning I did rely on uh, print ads and I still do for uh, a decent amount of my income. But after a while I, diversified to, you know, I started a podcast, um, because everyone had to start a, everyone started a climbing podcast. I figure I should, I should too, but I actually, it was, it's actually been a, a good boon. So I started the podcast and then, um, like doing merchandise as well. Like just started kind of diversifying was, you know, selling a lot of stickers and shirts and having the podcast. So it wasn't like as big of a deal in, in most of the companies that support the zine. Like I don't charge, I, I charge less, I'm sure than, than outside or any of the other, um, publications for ads. So I've been able to retain most of my print ad sponsors just because the price is so affordable. And occasionally I'll get dropped by a company that isn't doing print anymore. Um, and ideally I would love to have the zine be free of ads someday. That would be like a dream, but then that would need more support from subscribers. And, and that's why I kind of push like the keep the zine alive campaign and stuff. But with the zine, I just don't have that much competition anymore. And, and more and more people are still finding out about it. So I rely much more now on subscription dollars than I do than I did in the past where, um, yeah, you could just like a magazine could just rely on ad revenue for a long time. And, um, but that has, that has dried up in the print space, but like, you know, going back to the mountain Gazette, I hear that they, you know, they have a certain amount of spots and then they'll make companies like compete for it, you know? So the other part of this conversation too, is the internet was able to do so much better with like just report remember like the hot flashes column in climbing magazine where somebody did a 13d and then like andrew was saying two months later it's in a magazine you know like instagram does that so much better or youtube or whatever um so i think that's the other part of the magazine thing we never did that um with the zine it was just always stories um dabbled in gear reviews for a while until we realized we were kind of bsing our way through gear reviews and didn't really want to do that anymore oh really yeah. <laughs> Your reviews were BS, huh? <laughs> <laughs> they all are, people. They all are. I um I feel a rant uh, suddenly cooking up in inside um, that maybe I'm going to write at some point. Um, but you just t- kind of tipped me off on an idea here, Luke, about the. I, I just had these flashbacks to the amount of feedback that I used to receive, and we used to receive at Rock and Ice about you know, the magazine being full of ads and just what a bummer that was. And so people just used to like, it, it was kind of like the the lowest bar of criticism was like, this magazine's full of ads and blah, blah, blah. People would rant about that. But it's interesting to see how we now live in this world where literally everyone is has become an advertisement for some company or something that they're doing on Instagram. Like the companies who... Uh, have found their way to like pay people, you know, pay influencers to hawk their products and to, and to promote their brands and to promote their messages. And it's turned everyone into an ad. And I find that ironic and also just infuriating at the same time, because the critique about advertisements in, in magazines has always seemed to me to be like just one of the dumbest ones. And so you, you just kind of mentioned that you'd like to move to an ad-free model. So I was curious to hear what your reasons and motivations are for that. Do you have that knee-jerk response to seeing any kind of paid placement in, in the pages of a magazine? Or like, oh, I guess, where does that come from? It, it would just come from if the print, if the company stopped doing it. 
because I we don't have I've never had that critique that there's too many ads. Um, and I and I once did the ratio that we had the highest ratio of of stories and photos to ads, and we used to pitch that in meetings and stuff. So the only re- in, in the companies I have are like Patagonia, Black Diamond, Osprey, Petzl. You know, just great companies um, that I've been working with for a while. And then we have some sponsors like Natives Outdoors and Access Fund, American Outbound Club. You know, so. Um, I would only stop doing the ads if they stop making placements, um, mm-hmm. you know, personally, just because I, I've never had too many BS ads and I've never had that critique that there's too many. I think we only have um, a, a, a small amount of, of advertising in it. So, um, cause that money is, is super helpful um, with printing getting so fucking expensive. That's been the big crux of the last few years is my print costs have at least doubled, you know, and then sometimes mm-hmm. my printers like, I print in the United States, but he's like, I got to get this paper five months ahead of time and uh, with supply chain issues. So how are you selling ads now? I mean, do you go to the trade show? Do you reach out to, you know, who are you like, how do you do that? Because I, I, I guess I ask that because I imagine that a lot of marketing departments at these companies, if someone were to walk into their booth at the trade show and say, I've got a little magazine, do you want to buy a print ad? They'd be, they wouldn't even know what that word print ad means like you know because we do live in this landscape where marketing budgets go to you know so many different things including paying all of these fucking losers on instagram to to sponsor their products uh through these deceptive posts that they're making um people i'm sure who at one point in their life would have critiqued magazines for having too many advertisements in them um have themselves become the com- Andrew, biggest sellouts no, come on. <laughs> calm down. all right all right all right i'll save i'll save it for evening sense um but yeah so anyway that's my uh i i i'm just curious to know like do you find um a lot of people like like we we don't even have budgets for print ads now like what, what are you talking about or, or is there a lot of like kind of curiosity and like warm reception to the idea that someone's out there making a magazine still. Yeah. I I need to get back on the ground and start pitching. I think that maybe that climbing wall association, um, annual get together is is maybe a better way now to start pitching. But most of my clients did come through, um, outdoor retailer in this pre pandemic world, you know, go to outdoor retailer, make a pitch, um, try to get a yes. Cause I think you can get a yes face-to-face with somebody, um, a lot easier. And, um, so yeah, most of my clients did come through OR and, and sit down, um, face-to-face meetings. And then that, that's my fear is like this person leaves a company and then the next person comes in with a different idea. And, um, and it's not like the greatest fear, but I, I do think that could happen someday. So a lot of times there's these, you know, like Justin Roth, who's my contact at Patagonia. Um, I met him at when he was working for Urban Climber in 2000, whatever, seven or something, you know? So, um, but then, um, then occasionally I'll get a new, these days I'll have a, just a like kilter just reached out to me and was like, we love what you're doing. We want to just sponsor, you know? So occasionally I'll get something like that, but, um, I, I miss that OR was this central place where a lot of things went down. Um, I truly do miss that. And, um, that has probably hindered me a little bit, um, with getting new business, but I do think that, um, whatever it's called that like in, indoor, the climbing wall associate, it was in Pittsburgh, um, this last week yeah, or something, CWA. um, CWA. Yeah. Uh, I do think I want to start probably going to that next year or something. Cause, um, I don't get the feeling that outdoor retailer has that synergy and, and centeredness. And I went to the big outdoor gear show last year and was, they were very low on, on climbing businesses. 
Um, so I, I think there's something, you know, climbers, international climbers festival is good too, but there's not a lot of like sit down meetings there. Um, so I, I want to kind of get back and try to retain or try to get some new business with going to, but it's just that face to face. If you can make a good pitch and you can connect with someone and sometimes it takes, you know, you make a connection, but then three years later it, it something happens too. So I think that like face to, you can't really, um, you know, just going back to these things that are timeless, like face to face connection with, with people, um, is really what got, you know, people excited about the zine and, you know, 10 years later, some of those sponsors still are, have the same people in the office or, um, are still sponsoring it. So. Yeah. And let me ask you some questions about like, um, back to this evolution thing too, you know, thing, cause we, we've commiserated over the years, um, as the, the independent media in climbing kind of scene and commiserated the lack of money or whatever, or our business acumen. Um, because I've, I've found, you know, with my thing and, and with your thing too, I mean, we're, we're sort of creative people and, and we, we sort of pulled these, these projects out of our butt one day and decided that we were going to go for it. And like the business part was probably came later for you as well as for me, like, I'm going to print this thing at Kinko's and hand it out to my friends. And then, you know, later on, it was like with me with the podcast, same thing with the normal cast. Like, I'm going to make some of these and we'll see if people listen. And then, you know, the business end of it sort of came in afterwards and I'm not very good at it. And, and, um, you know, it, again, like I, I'm a, I'm sort of the creative producer in a way. And, and when you we were talking about whether you would get rid of ads, you know, and Andrew's thing with where they were getting critiqued for too many ads with me, I just, if I could get rid of that part of my job where I, I have to talk business and do contracts and all that sort of thing, that's the reason I would get rid of it. Um, although at this point, I think my fans would be pissed actually if I didn't have ads on, but, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's, ads, it's more yeah. like if you, you know, I don't know if you, do you enjoy that hustle? Do you enjoy that? Uh, like going out and trying to get up business? I know Sean's sort of your guy with that too. That's really helpful, but, but I don't not even sort of. And so, um, that's the reason I would like, like to just jettison any sort of ads where I could just stay in my little studio and make my shit and people would give me money for it without me ever having to leave kind of thing, which is what we do at the run out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the big difference between me and you is I, I actually really do enjoy the business side of oh, it. Cool. Um, I sucked at it originally, but I, I actually, I really enjoy it and I have actually pretty big ambitions and, and goals with, um, some of like the merchandising and, and growing, you know, writing books and, and doing films and stuff. So I actually, I think that's the difference between me and you is I really enjoy it. And I, I've noticed right. that over the years. So I was like, Chris, you should check out this and I could help you with this. And you're like, ah, whatever. I'm so, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Cause I'm, I've always, I'm like a yeah. phobic almost with it. It's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. You said you have 10 million downloads. You, you could be monetizing this thing, um, a lot more than you are, or you could even hire an agency or something, Chris. So right. I think it, it really comes down to probably you just, you, you dislike it a lot more than I do. And I actually really like, I really like it. And I just love the, if you can just diversify and have different income streams, um, I think that's why the zine's been able to be, you know, kind of going full circle back to magazine versus zine. Being a one-person show, it's like kind of this modern thing. Getting a little social media savvy and having different income channels um, 
you know, I just had like the, the last year I had was the best year I've had for the climbing zine and the business grew like 35%. So, well, advertising is, um, of course, only one part of making a magazine. And then there's the other half, which is the content and editorial decisions and stuff. And yeah, I'd love to hear your take on how you're running that side of the zine as well, because, um, one, you know, magazines used to serve a function and, and they were a platform for people to share ideas that they didn't have anywhere else in their life. And so, but that of course isn't true today. Everyone has their own platform. They can publish their thoughts wherever they want. And, and and at least in climbing culture that often seems to take place on Instagram. So what is the pitch to getting writers on board and photographers on board and how do they come to you? Do you, you know, assign ideas? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, I have my my writers that have you know like a Chris Schulte or something that have have written for me and and supported it since the beginning. And Chris is such a good writer; he'll I'll just see something that he writes, like some Schulte rant on Instagram or whatever, and then I'll publish that. Um, people send me pitches too. I'm always encourage people to send me stories. Um, about ninety five percent of what I get is um, is not super high quality writing. It's like this trip report. Like I did this and it's like, do you read the zine? You know, like the zine is not a, it's not a trip report, um, style thing. So it, it takes a, so, so most of what I get in front of me is not, um, something all, I try to, you know, hit everyone back over email, but as you know, like writing is, is a craft and it, it is, you know, there's a lot of different ingredients to a good story. So it, it's a hunt, man, to find the five story. You know, I probably publish now 10 stories a year and, and maybe eight of them are from other writers. So I'm looking at just finding eight stories a year and it's a challenge. It really is. But I feel like every time I'll start to freak out, you know, like waking up in the middle of the night and like, oh, I don't have enough stories. I'll, I'll like the next morning, a, a beautiful story will be in my inbox, you know. But so I, I hunt and then I have the typical array of, of contributors that ebbs and flows over the years, you know, people kind of have runs that, um, they'll do two or three stories in a row and then, and then not do it. And then sometimes I'll just meet people at events like at mountain film or something, you know, just meet, um, an incredible person and, um, they'll tell you they'll write for you. And usually they don't, but just, just those like festival connections or, and especially with photographers and artists too, that's really helpful. So I'll also wait on a publication. You know, I think, climbing rock and ice you probably didn't have that luxury like let's wait a month <laughs> you know um i've been working with um, ed webster's um uh, wife lisa to republish one of his articles and it delayed this this um, most recent issue by like two months but i knew i wanted to do some sort of ed webster tribute and then it just took you know she's obviously grieving his death but she was very um supportive of wanting to get a good article and Jeff Akey actually recommended something that he wrote in 1977 about like the second ascent of the cruise that they got benighted on. And then, um, Vic Seilman had some photos that were high quality. And then Henry Barber was helping out with getting us some of Ed's photos. And then the American Alpine club library actually found this article in mountain magazine from 1977 and it was in a PDF. And then we had to get it into a different format. So, um, I think it's a big luxury that I have is uh, I'll just, I'll wait until I, I feel like I have the standard that I want, but it's, um, it's just a, a wide variety of working with, with different people. And then, you know, something like Ed Webster, it's like, I just felt compelled to, to do, you know, some sort of tribute to, to Ed Webster, you know? Uh, and that all started with Jimmy Dunn, who has become like a personal friend of mine. And he just will call me and just start telling me stories. And then 
I just like felt compelled to, to do something, you know, for his, his memory, but you make it sound so easy. (laughs) It's not, I mean, eight stories a year is, I I have to lament about this a little bit because I, I guess, do you worry about the, the, the craft of writing dying, this literary tradition and climbing dying out? I mean, to, to, the idea that it's painful to find eight pieces of writing that are worth putting on a piece of paper every year is is such a challenge. Like that, that to me says something that is far more concerning than. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I I do worry, but then I also I just think it's the zine is still really small. You know, um, Patagonia is probably a bigger. Justin Roth and I talked about this. Like, they're a bigger publishing house than the climbing scene is, even though I'm arguably like the number one print rock climbing publication because, because it's just us and California climber, you know? Um, so I think that still, um, people maybe don't know about the zine and that's why I kind of wanted to be on the run out and have obviously like just, you guys are two interesting people to have this conversation with, but just, I'm always trying to like spread the, the depth of the audience to send me stories. Um, cause I think more people probably send pitches to Patagonia than, than send to me. Um, as far as the craft of writing, um, I, I don't think it's a dying, but it is, I mean, there, there's many reasons to be concerned. Um, and Andrew, I'm sure you can relate. I know Chris, you've done a little bit of writing, but most of writing is just like stumbling over yourself and failure and like throwing things in the trash, but like getting back the next morning and doing it, you know, over and over again, um, in this effort. And, I think with, especially with like this AI stuff and all this other, these other things, like, are people going to have that motivation to write? Um, but then I also think what, what do I have left of my, you know, I'm going to do this, what, 15, 20, 30 more years. Like I, I don't, it's not like a concern I think in my lifetime, cause I think us, and I, I think younger people will find that urge to write, but, um, yeah, well, when I'm like ready to sell the climbing zine, will that be something that like someone will want to buy and and continue it? But um, I try not to like worry about that too much and just really hone in on like, I got to get another zine out. Um, And I feel like they always end up good. And this one, I just, I I got one that's at my designer right now. um, And I I feel like really good about it. And I was worried about it all along. So I worry all the time uh, about writing stuff, but it, it always, it always comes together in the end. It really does. What happens to your mind, your body, and your soul if you eat only McDonald's burgers for months on end? Well, in a recent experiment, Scottish climbing ace Dave McLeod did just that with surprising results, even to him. He also took aim at some vegan talking points. So I would agree with the the vegan movement with much of what they say about the problem. It's the solution that I would disagree with. So their solution is just don't eat beef. But in my view, I think that replaces one set of problems with another. Um, One would be malnutrition. (laughs) Another would be loss of soil health. And the the third one would be, I I don't think it will actually solve many of the problems it reports to, including climate change. So join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to hear the rest of Dave's take on his experiment, the science of nutrition, or lack thereof, and why you vegans ought to hug a cow once in a while. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. 
That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout and become a rope gun today. On today's final bit, we feature Billy and the Box Kid, a quintet from Bend, Oregon. Members Anderson Koenig, Tommy Lutz, and Scotty McClelland all met through music, but really bonded over a mutual love of climbing. And remaining bandmates Ryan Harris and Ben Westner are being drawn into the climbing cause as well. Saturday Night Kid is the first track off their eponymous EP, which you can find at Spotify by searching Billy and the Box Kid.
just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalus, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, po- dot com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.